Hey guys, it's Phil with the Motor Beamer Show, and I'm excited to bring you yet again another amazing conversation with an industry insider. Eric Haugen is the owner of Wolfman Luggage, and we have some amazing conversation, which I know you're going to love. You see, that's the beauty of this podcast. We get to bring folks on, and you get to dive deep into their mindset, their methodologies, things that you might not get outside of a platform like this. In this episode, we go into his thoughts on riding above the status quo. We talk adventure motorcycles, adventure motorcycle tires. He gives us his thoughts on the BDR. We talk about riding to Alaska, actually riding through forest fires as well. And then we get an education on waterproofing and his passion project, Threadworks, which he does by himself behind a sewing machine in his, what we'll call a lab. His wealth of knowledge about the motorcycle industry is absolutely incredible. So please enjoy this episode and let's get into it. All right, everybody, welcome to the show. The Motor Beamer Show, it's Phil, and I have Eric with Wolfman Luggage, the owner of Wolfman Luggage. There he is on the screen with all his fabric behind him, yeah. looking good. We spoke on the phone a couple of days ago, a wealth of knowledge. It was really cool, Eric, to get to speak to you on the phone after you know using some of your kit and then finding out about your story and the Wolfman story and kind of how it you know came together and what you've been doing in the industry and kind of what you're pioneering now is is super interesting, and I can't wait for folks to hear about it. So, Eric, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it uh, appreciate you reaching out. Appreciate I definitely uh, appreciate being on the show, and let's uh, let's get into it. We kind of spoke a little bit about the flow, and I definitely want to get into what you're doing now. But as with all the other episodes, I really think it's important that you know we see Wolfman luggage, and well, it's some really good gear that you use on your bike. But what is the story behind it? Who is the person behind it? What, what experiences have you lived in your life? And I think that that's why we're here. And I, I can't wait to dive into it. But before we do, you have something that might break some hearts, might hurt some feelings, hurt mine a little bit. But you have this phrase and it goes uh, right above the status quo. If you want to dig into that a little bit, I think I found that super interesting when we spoke on the phone about riding above the status quo. Well, I think the status quo right now is um, and from a, my perspective that I see in the industry right now, first of all, um, adventure bikes, dual sport is the, is the, the, the it right now in motorcycle world. Yes. Everybody has jumped in from the companies we never thought would jump in Ducati. I mean, BMW definitely has been leading the pack and they're definitely milking that, um, uh, the history that they've had. I even had an R80 GS 86 way back when, um, wow. before it was as one person, it was Lee parks from, uh, total control. And then, um, a total control school, he was motorcycle instructor. He also was an editor for a magazine. And I think he used to sell gloves and a few things. He said, Eric, you were cool before dual sport was cool. So uh, <laughs> I was like, uh, okay, you know, I like we, it. we definitely were doing some uh, stuff way back in the, back in the day when the three main bikes were a B, or four bikes were BMW GS and, uh, 100. Uh, then we had the KLR, the DR and the XL 650. And that's kind of the bikes we had. Nobody was doing, you know, what we see now, uh, nobody was doing that and stuff like that. So it was kind of interesting. But um, rise above is kind of looking at the industry in a way of, you know, the, everything. I hate to say this, it's gotten homogenized a bit. 
Mm. You know, it's kind of like an SUV. You kind of take the, if you took the motorcycles and just gave a silhouette of each of the brands, just take all the branding off, but it's just black on white or white on black. You're not really going to know who's who. They all kind of, from a side perspective, they will start to really look similar. Similar, not the same, but similar. And that goes for the uniform, so to speak, the uniform. Uh, a, a motorcycle like uh, motocross type boot, uh, something that's going to be mm-hmm. below the knee. It's not a street race boot. It's got buckles and so on, waterproof, not waterproof, some kind of pant that either goes over the boot, in the boot. Um, and a three-quarter length jacket. Back in the day, it was, you know, an enduro coat. That was it back in the day. And now it's, you know, we got Climb and God knows how many other brands doing it. And then you have either a uh, uh, a motocross style helmet with a visor, some are flip front and whatnot, but you're all kind of cookie cutter now. And so the, I would I- agree. Yep. the, the idea with ride above the status quo is with, uh, with Threadworks, which is our new product line that I'm really pioneering right now. Um, um, and since I'm behind the machine, uh, I try to really push some people's boundaries of, Let's get away from black. Everything we've done for so long has just been generic black. And granted, all our product for a long time has been black because mass production is is such that you have trying to figure out the color combination, how many colors to make and blah, blah, blah. is just an absolute nightmare. So with Threadworks, which is all made to order, I actually sit behind the sewing machine and do it. So I can kind of pull stuff out of people. When we talk on the phone, it's like, do you really want black? What what other colors you want to go with? What is your bike? Uh, like right now, I've got a orange Blackhawk I got to make. Um, obviously, it has KTM. So we're going to put that on there. Um, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. We did a lot of uh, royal blue for people with Tenere's. Um, I've done uh, red for Honda. I did a, a, a yellow and royal combination for a guy who had a bunch of Husabergs. Which, if you know the history of Husberg, that was when, uh, oh, what was it? When, oh, and I don't there? know the history of okay. Um, so Husky <laughs> got sold to God, this is a long time ago, so I'm forgetting some of the history to um, the people that owned, oh, it will come to me. Um, it's not by Moda, it's uh, Kajiba. Okay. And Kajiba was the, was the parent company. It was a family business. They then since own uh, MV Augusta. But they bought um, Husaberg, came, they bought Husky away f- uh, from Sweden and brought Husky to Italy. All the engineers that were left in Sweden created Husaberg. Um, BMW then bought uh, Husky and then um, Pure Mobility parent company of KTM by Husky. Uh, actually, they bought Husenberg, then they bought Husky. But um, anyway, he's a bunch of Husenberg. So it was a blue and uh, yellow combination. So we do all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. I like to kind of push people's boundaries and ride above the status quo, meaning dare to be something different. You know, let's change the way you look at your motorcycle instead of just generic black. Let's have some fun with it. Um, I've right. got... And I, I'm just sitting behind my rolls of fabric. I got some hot pink. This guy, hot I love pink. It. And I got this. 
actually, I would love to do a set of bags for someone who beat breast cancer. Beautiful. I love that. And I think that would be so powerful that somebody, even a you know, big macho guy with some hot pink bags on there, be like, dude, you know, <laughs> we beat breast cancer. And I'm like, I'm all into it because let's, let's bring some more passion out of that. Um, I brought in what I call the ladies, which is this really cool kind of their day of the dead fabric and mm. it's on the website made some saddlebags all kinds of stuff and i, I want to do something different i want to put some art into it uh use tacos um one of the other fabrics we just introduced i'm going to step out of the uh, uh the frame for a minute because i see the bag yeah, yeah. we brought uh, uh, a color called sand back in it was a tan color a long time ago and then i found this chocolate brown just kind of a rich, just kind of a really cool color. And I call it dirt. <laughs> so we just did a uh, photo shoot. So we're going through the photos and everything. And that's uh, uh, just trying to look at doing something different. Make it personalized. Um, make it for yourself or let me make it with you. It's, you know, you're the customer. So I, let me, you know, I have my our, our silhouettes and our patterns, but let me make that with you for you. Um, and I think that's uh, something that's not seen in the industry. So let's ride above that status quo and let's really get creative and don't look, you don't have yeah. to look like everyone else. And the status quo is just kind of looking like everybody else. Let's, let's, let's get past that. And let's have some fun with that. Um, I have a dear close friend of mine and I wish I could show you the bags, but I, I really can't because uh, I told her I wouldn't until she gets them. I wouldn't show them to you, but uh, she is one of uh, – she's got a cooler job than both of us put together. And I made her <laughs> very special bags. Uh, my wife picked a silhouette that just will fit her. Um, she's one of Jay Leno's six mechanics. Oh, and wow. Only female and the youngest one there. So I made her very specific bags. So she hadn't seen them yet, so – really cool so that's the kind of stuff i want to do and that's what ride above the status quo means i love that eric i think um you know i just recently well i had a klr 650 i bought back in 2015 so recently for me compared to you sort of got into the adventure motorcycling and same thing all black suit now an all gray suit awry xd4 helmet you know so it is kind of you know cookie cutter i guess you could say a little bit i do have a question that that kind of popped in my head while you were talking what what sort of was the catalyst to the, I believe, the explosion of the popularity of adventure motorcycling? And so what I mean by that is mm -hmm. I have not been riding as long as you, 25 years. But when I was riding, it was sport bikes, sport touring bikes, you know, sport, 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 track days, oh, yeah. all the things. And now, you know, living in Colorado and you obviously come out here. I mean, it's all you see. And not only is that all you see, it's GSs, GSs, GSs. So what was in your mind, sort of the catalyst for that, uh, that shift in the industry, I guess you could say. Um, I'm going to use a quote by who <laughs> Lee Parks and I have called Yoda and he's not, he, he was, uh, it's Andy Goldfine, the owner of Aerostitch. Aerostitch okay. made his, uh, yeah. claim to fame with a one piece suit, the zipper that starts yep. at the neck and then ends at the ankle. And he still builds them today here in the U S in Duluth, Minnesota. Minnesota. Minnesota? Yeah, I think so. Might be on the wrong state. But anyway, um, 
he kind of felt this uh, increase, and I have to kind of agree with that. Th- there were a couple things. Um, the increase of SUVs okay. when the the two main SUVs that came out were the Pathfinder and the Forerunner. Those were kind of competing head to head, and then the Pathfinder kind of uh, kind of went to the wayside. Forerunner kept going, and and then more people got into crossovers, SUVs that looked this outdoorsy look you know jeep is into it now everybody's you know you look at a jeep they're all off-road and all that kind of stuff but it was kind of that look that people were getting um and Mm -hmm. bmw back in uh must have been about 88 when they came out again with the r100 gs what we called the bumblebee because it had r100 had the thousand cc motor and the paralever rear end uh, the R the R eighty was an eight hundred cc with a monolever. Paralever had some U joints and stuff in it, um, and that kind of definitely created it and started to morph into people like, oh, I can take this off road. Um, and you know, we didn't really have much GPS back then. You had uh, there were some GPSs that would do a track, but it, you didn't put maps in and that kind of thing it was uh, much more basic than it is now and a lot more manual than it is now um and then the bike that really became popular to i think to really push um uh the the beginnings of uh adventure riding was the klr 650 because it was cheap and it was pretty bomb proof i mean it went from being made in japan to being uh made in thailand but the engine i think was still made in japan not quite sure but the cases always said made in japan so i think the motor was made there they were they have a big like city block facility in thailand that assembles a ton of their bikes so does honda now and um, stuff like that so those were some iconic things but i think one of the biggest things where all of a sudden big bike became the hit was long way around with charlie and ewan the mm. the rumor so these are the rumors they did the it rumor. on, let's go yeah. so they uh they approached ktm and ktm just came out with the uh 950 adventure the v-twin and the rumor was they 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 didn't do it um ktm obviously never gave them a bike um and uh the rumor was they didn't know if it would last it was too new so BMW obviously jumped in. I think there were 1100, uh, 1150 or whatnot um, adventures. And obviously, we've, if you've seen the movie, it was kind of fun. And then Claudio, the uh, photographer, also had one. So I think that was one of the biggest impacts of I want to do that. And Touratech was making luggage at the time, and they were not quite what they are today. I remember talking to Tom Myers, who uh, was the uh, distributor of Turatech for quite some time, and I think he's still involved quietly with Turatech. Paul Gillian and uh, Kimo are the principal owners now, or directors of Turatech USA. And, you know, they really had to kind of bring that in, tidy up some quality and so on, and it started to go mainstream, and they would make these catalogs that were like this thick in like 10 different languages, and then they would do trips all the time, um, really promoting that that scene. Um, 
which is the the other thing that was kind of this really odd thing back in the mid from you know the late 80s into the mid 90s to late 90s was the Europeans got all the bikes they had the Honda 750V V twin that was uh, based off of the the bike that raced in Dakar back in the nineties with Rothman's Honda, um, the parallel the X, uh, XTZ Yamaha seven fifty was a parallel twin that uh, was the Tenere seven fifty Tenere. We never got it. Canada, I think, got it for a little bit. We never got those, and I think it was because of the motorcycle companies in the U.S. were very paranoid. They didn't American Honda very conservative, and so on. Um, right. So they had all the bikes, but nowhere to ride. We have no bikes and a lot of places to ride. So a lot. And yeah, um, and some of it's getting closed down, and we can go into that topic. I have an opinion on what's going on in Moab and so on, and everybody mm-hmm. does. Some people are like it's bad, and I'm like, mm, let's, let's, you know, we have to respect the environment first before we jump around. But um, so that was, I think, one of the big things. And then finally, the American uh, market started to open up, looking at more and more um, bikes and so on. And BMW, I believe, was definitely the I mean, it's just proven. You can look at all the the data and just kind of the pictures and the history, looking back on magazines and everything, is they were definitely pushing that big bike mentality and always have been. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 the BMW GS, the main GS, the twin um, from the 800 when it was the uh, R80 to the 1000, with, still with the boxer motor, and then it became 1100, 1150, 1200, 1250, and now it's 1300. That has been their right. flagship motorcycle. Um, I think it now, for a while, the uh, RT, the road, the road bike, was selling more in the US than the GS. And I think the GS is now their principal moneymaker. Well, let me, can, can so, I ask you a, mm-hmm. a question about the GS? I actually, uh, because we're talking about the popularity of adventure bikes and the mm-hmm. ability to, you know, as, as you know, here in Colorado, you can just, man, I can bust the left on a dirt road or even a rocky road, anywhere I want to go. Right. But there's an interesting dynamic, and I, I think I made a video about it, but I can't remember. But so if you look at all these GSs or even some of the other bikes coming off the showroom floor, adventure, mm-hmm. straight up, almost street tires on these things. So there's a little bit of like, is that what the mark the market is? I kind of want my Jeep Wrangler to be able to go off-road, but maybe I really don't go off-road. I, I always like, why don't they throw some 50-50s on there or some 80-20s the other way? What's your opinion on that? Um, I'm going to kind of a- agree with some of that. Um, okay. That I think for a lot of people – um, let's, let's use a Jeep example and, you know, somebody might get all cranky at me, but I would and say, I, you know, and before people, you start, I need to, I need to interject that I'm no off-road expert. It's just something okay. that popped in my head. No, 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 no. And I think what, what you're saying is very valid. Um, I think, uh, there's a lot of people who like an appearance. Okay. You know, uh, yep. if you bought a, uh, you know, putting on a lift kit with a big monster pickup, big tires, that kind of thing. 
that's an appearance thing. You know, are you really going to go off road? Mm, I don't know, but it's definitely for looks for sure. Um, for sure. Uh, I think, um, a lot of times, uh, manufacturers are incredibly conservative a lot, especially with tires and mm-hmm. so on. Like BMW can then buy the option of off-road tires. Okay. And you just kind of have to tell them that I want whatever off-road tire. Um, they're always going to give you more, not the aggressive knob. They're going to give you more of a 50-50 or a 60-40, maybe even a 70-30 tire. So... Um, but that's kind of in general. I mean, the, the tires that were on my Honda, I have a Honda 650L. That's what I ride. We can get into that later. Um, uh, they're kind of junk tires. I mean, they, they kind of suck after a thousand miles. You know, first oil change, I'm ditching them. I'm going straight to my go-to tires that I am comfortable with, that I've used for a gazillion years. It's just I know the characteristics, right. comfortable with it. I'm used to it, so I go to my go-to tire. So when tires, I think it's kind of like, uh, I think that's, that's definitely a, uh, personal, personal, uh, opinion on tires. People, I mean, I have my combinations, people have theirs, but I mean, it's kind of like sure. oil. It's kind of like oil. You know, I, I start when people get into the oil thing, just to throw a wrench in all, everybody's psyche is like, you know, I think, uh, you know, extra virgin kind of an Argentine Italian combo is really good. Smells good at the end and people just lose their minds. And I'm like, dude, just put something in it. Change the shit. Let's go. I don't care. It's all good. You know, if you're riding a motorcycle, Mm -hmm. use moto oil. It doesn't matter. I mean, come (laughs) on, just, you're going to change. It doesn't matter. So kind of, you don't have to get so about it. Um, I think now adventure bikes are extremely comfortable um because sport bikes you know you're in this crouched position where as we age and, and bikes aren't getting any cheaper so you know a bmw right now you you would walk out you'd be hard pressed to walk out under twenty four thousand on a new 1300 mm-hmm. that's just fact yep. and they're all getting up there i mean i had uh a KTM 790 Adventure Rally, and that was 20 grand. I mean, their new 12 or 1390, whatever it's going to become, that's going to be in the mid 20s now. So, you know, there's a big money, but they're very comfortable because it's an upright seating position. And, you know, they go, you know, 160 horsepower, BMW, 130, 140 horsepower. I mean, these things, so now you've got power and a little more comfort. So I think the, one of the reasons they're so popular is they're actually quite comfortable. Uh, by and large, Very you know, more of a uh, yeah. more of a neutral seating position, uh, with still with your feet under you, not like a cruiser, where everything is on your butt. So you hit a bump, and your back takes all of that. Whereas on a adventure bike, you see a big pothole. You know, sometimes you just kind of put your put some weight on your feet just so your butt's off the seat, just to get through that that kind of thing. And you got more suspension. I um, mean, you know, let's face it, our road quality throughout the U.S. is kind of tanked. So why does people drive SUVs? Because our roads kind of suck. And you've got a little more meat. You got some, a little bit more suspension than just a normal low, uh, normal car. Um, and I think it's a comfort thing as well. And you get. I think so. I think. Yeah, you know when you you talk about the the GS, so I have a GS Adventure. Um, mm-hmm. It weighs fifteen thousand pounds. Yep. But I, I say that it 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 does everything pretty good, right? Mm-hmm. Like I can do some off road stuff. I can tour. I can go two up. I can 
hit some, I can corner, I can do, you know, so you're making a little bit of that compromise of I can just about do everything. Whereas a sport bike is going to do one thing really well. A dirt bike is going to do one thing really. So this is almost like the, the multi-tool, but you do have a little bit of an exception here or there, I, I think. And, and I think that's why also why people like them so much. I think it's also, um, you, I think you're, 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 you're right there. Uh, I am, I agree with that. You're kind of getting a Swiss army knife because it can do so many things. Um, right. It's not, you know, it's not a toolbox, but it's, you know, it can do a lot of stuff. It can get you out of stuff. You know, it, it has a lot of feature to it. Um, uh, if you, you're not going to, well, they're doing this now, but you know, you, in the past you wouldn't take a 1200 on the Erzberg rodeo. Now they have like the adventure series. So now they're kind of branching into a class of adventure bikes now in, some of the off-road racing that's going on. We see that in Europe a lot, uh, especially on the Yamaha T7, the Tenere 700, Paul Torres, and Paul Torres, who is a uh, trials rider. Some of the stuff he's doing and some of the people b- below that are just, you know, phenomenally what they're doing with 500-pound motorcycles. It's like, whoa, yeah. okay. You know, and that's, uh, it's, you know, that bike handling skill is amazing. Chris Birch down in uh, from Australia, what he does on a 1290 is just impressive. Um, and so, um, and, and that's just a skill set that is learned over a lot of training over the years. Um, so, um, you know, I think it's uh, definitely – Let's get back to kind of that kind of the rise in popularity. I think there's a look, you know, because it's kind of a beefy look, has this off-road feel, but it's also just incredibly comfortable. And I think we've changed that status. I mean, let's face it. If these bikes weren't popular, comfortable, and and do things, Harley would never have gotten into it with a Pan Am. You know, they were so, so... Um, ingrained in there. It was funny. I did, this is something a lot of people don't know. And some people don't even know this name. I did all the luggage for Buell motorcycles when they were Sportster based. And when Eric and and Buell was in East Troy. So we made all the luggage for all the bikes at that time. And uh, I remember I said something about Harley being conservative. One of the people is like, we're not conservative. We are steeped in tradition. That V-twin is our tradition, like, uh, you know, certain uh, car companies, uh, whatever. I mean, everybody, if they, you've been around that long, you have a tradition. So um, for Harley to jump out of that and come into a modern motor, which I've ridden one, and it's surprisingly uh, fun bike. It does, it hides what, its uh, weight well and, and so on. But, um, so. you know. You mentioned Eric Buell, and so I used to have a, a Ducati 1098S and mm-hmm. open clutch, big Termignone exhaust. I love the way it sounded, and it was loud. And uh, but I, I don't think I've ever been next to a motorcycle that I thought was going to shake itself apart than being <laughs> next to a <laughs> being next to a Buell. I mean, oh, they yeah. were they were cool back in the day, and people rode them. Uh, I haven't seen one in a number of years. Uh, but man, those things would just idle and just, you know, just like, wow. Okay. You know, it's part of the personality. It was a, you know, it's inherently unbalanced motor at a certain time. Cause I think they're a 30 degree V twin versus Ducati being a 
90 degree or 45. I, I, I don't know all the specific, I can't remember all the specifics, but oh yeah, mm-hmm. I had a couple of them and man, that's something. <laughs> but you get it up to, you get it up to like 80 miles an hour and it was just glass smooth, super yeah. planted. Um, and that was one of the problems they had. They, they used rubber as an isolating system and that rubber would just kind of wear out after a while. And that's when, uh, I'm not going to get into well, all the stuff I know about Buell, but uh, it, it was they, a, they uh, didn't they field a team in AMA, or am I incorrect in that? No, they actually created. Uh, it was actually more Harley created a motor that was. Um, I think Miguel, one of the Duhamels, did it. Um, not Miguel, maybe Miguel um, helped them. Um, race a bike for maybe two seasons at the most. Um, mm-hmm. And it was a motor thing, uh, like the V-Rod. I think it may have been the motor that came out of the V-Rod. I'm not sure. I know Porsche had a lot to do with that motor. And um, and then when then Buell, Eric, then went to Rotax to have them build the next generation of motors, which is in the current iteration of what Buell is today, that motor that came from Rotax is in it. Um, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, let me, um, so. interject real quick on, uh, mm-hmm. since you're, you, you have a ton of, you know, you said you rode the Pan America, you're very familiar with the GS, you had a KTM. Mm-hmm. If I were to ask you, you know, cause I'm sure all the bikes can do it. But based on your knowledge and, and what you know of these motorcycles, if I were to say I'm going to do the classic, because this is on my list, Prudhoe Bay on an adventure bike, what is your number one recommendation? Because I'm thinking, oh, the GS is great, but it's too big. It's got a shaft drive. That's cool. No chain. But what are your um, thoughts on doing a, an adventure like that? What bike would you take all the way to Alaska and back? Me personally, um, I've gotten – that's an interesting question. I have, I know the bike I will do it on and I'll, uh, and then I'll, I just, I rank them. Um, I like simplicity in my life. Um, okay. if you look yep. at, I'm going to use, I'm going to use this as analogy of kind of, um, how my luggage is designed as how I do thread work. So I like very simple things. I ride mm-hmm. a Honda XR 650L right now because it has no tech. I'm the tech package. I'm everything in that. I'm ABS. I'm traction control. I'm wheelie control. I am quick shift. <laughs> I'm everything. And there's something refreshing about that because what we've mm-hmm. gotten to this point, and uh, there's a person at uh, Yamaha kind of said it very correctly. We're a horsepower nation. And uh, so we want big power. But big power Absolutely. doesn't always work, you know, and unfortunately, I mean, then we have to take big power and dumb it down. So it's actually functional power, usable power, usable power and big power, two vastly different things. You know, a Tenere yep. 750, 700 is 70 horsepower. Nothing special, but it's good usable power, but it doesn't need all the what I call kind of dumbing down of a high performance engine to be usable. It doesn't need, it doesn't have a lot of that. They brought more into it. I think in 24, 23, 24, 
Um, and some people are like, yay. Other people are like, uh, I don't want all that. I want to go back to the simple ABS. So um, if I was going to go to um, Prudhoe Bay, I want something I can work on. I'm familiar with. I've owned two of them, and I'm still thinking about getting another one at some point. Would be a DR650. Personally, wow. Yep. Wow. I don't like uh, bells and whistles. I don't carry a lot of stuff. I want something that if I do see somewhere, I want to go off road. Um, I travel 99% alone. I'm a solo rider. Mm -hmm. I'm very comfortable in that in that environment. Um, but having a bike that's bigger than me really, to me, is limiting because you can't go all the way back because you're also in the back of your mind of, what if I get stuck? What if I, I can't get up and get back? So I, I ride a bike that I can ride, that I can dominate the whole motorcycle and feel comfortable and not feel like I can't get out. So it would be DR650 and then something like a uh, Tenere 700. And then somewhere in there would be like a, a GS just because it'd be a nice bike to ride. But when you get on the Dalton heading up to uh, the Arctic Circle, um, you know, that's just this. And if it starts to rain, you got this nasty muck zone, nasty slime. Big bikes aren't really that, you know, that, that's just more shit, you know, trying to pick that up numerous times. You can pick it up twice. You're going to be you're going to get tired real fast. So I would get something I'm much more comfortable on. And it's a simple motorcycle. I mean, XR, I do it, but I see, I use that more of a dirt bike. Um, so I, th I like I that because I, I don't, mm -hmm. I'm going to probably be picking it up a lot and you know, that's just a, a reality of riding up there. You know, the stories I've read and all that, and you can drop it. And, you know, I, I like to say the GS, uh, trickle down technology on that. I mean, I can do ride modes. I can control fuel delivery, all these things, but like up there, you just want something that probably works. Not saying the GS doesn't work, but I love the uh, simplistic approach yeah. because there's so many other things. The weather sucks. You're falling over. Who knows what else is going on? The last thing you need is my bike is messing up or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I like simplicity. Um, so I would, and it's actually my, I've had two DRs and I built them up really well. Um, you know, it has a sweet spot, 72 miles an hour, 74, somewhere very nice, calm, not pushing the engine, mm -hmm. just a nice sweet spot, which is perfect for that kind of bike. Um, and, uh, you know, cruises well. You can get a big tank. It has tons of aftermarket support. So you could really build up a nice bike for that uh, trip and, you know, be comfortable on it. Um, you, know, you don't need and, – and there's a, there's a big di difference between need and want. Let's also – you know, yeah. you don't need yeah. – a GS to do that trip. Hell, people have done it on 125s over the years. I mean, so it's not, you know, mm -hmm. there's a certain amount of comfort you want, sure. But uh, that would be my choice. Just the simplicity of a bike like that. That's a beautiful, I, I and that's why I love these conversations because you never kind of know what you're going to get. And I'm like, you know, is he going to say the, the classic, you know, late model, you know, GS or whatever? Like, no, I don't want that. And, and what comes to my mind is you're going to max out at like 60 miles an hour, but Hey, I'd, you're going to get there probably before me. If I drop my bike three times, I can't pick up that thousand pound monster with all the gear. on. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, if you're on muddy, I, I watched a friend of mine, uh, Davin, he works for built. Well, they went up to Alaska and somewhere on Harley's 
and old ones and they got two of them made it they were on pan ams but you know when it gets crappy and the road surface is crappy it doesn't matter what bike you're on you're only doing 20 miles an hour at times so it doesn't mm. matter if you're on uh, whatever you know yep <laughs> sometimes the the conditions dictate your speed no problem i mean i remember on the bdr the last day we were riding in snow and i was actually leading i could do 11 miles an hour this was in nevada bdr i could do 11 miles an hour i get up to 14 and i was getting all kinds of squirrely so i was like think second gear 11 miles an hour didn't matter they had people on 950s johnny campbell was on a uh, africa twin 11 miles an hour was like max so wow it didn't matter what bike you were on i was on sure so much i don't know yeah. about riding to alaska but you bring up the bdr and what is uh what's your advice you know because it is mega popular you see it all over instagram you see it all over youtube it is exploding yeah yeah um and people want to do it right well i think what how am i going to put this without pissing a lot of people off um i say you should go for it okay so Back in the day when we would find trails, we used, you know, before GPS, before all that, you know, a gazetteer, which was a map book, or the USGS, uh, US Geological Society um, topo maps, you know, where you read, uh, literally read a map. You have to understand mm -hmm. what are all the contour lines when they're close together, that's steeper, what's the, and, and so on. Reading a map is not as common as it used to be. We plug it in. Google tells us where to go. We um, are not as and we're adventuresome, but I think that sense of adventure with um, the BDR, the breadcrumbs are already laid out, mm. and I think I we've lost yeah. some of that of what is down that dirt road. Where? How can I go from? Palm Springs to Tucson off-road. How would I do that? Um, because there is no BDR there. So what do I do? Um, and I think because of BDR, we're getting more back to some of that where people are like, okay, I've done those, but they are right now. They're kind of highways with so many people on them and not just motorcycles. There have been, a lot of near misses with people who have gone back and done them on in vehicles, four wheel drive Jeep oh, wow. and, and so on. So that has happened. Um, I've heard some stories about that, but I think what it does is it, it unfortunately kind of sets a precedence that this is the way to travel, which is good for, I think a lot of people because it is, um, set up for kind of a novice to novice plus rider. Now, there, there are technical sections you can add in, um, but it gives a lot of pointer. It gives a lot of accessibility for uh, newer riders and experienced riders um, do it uh, quicker. Maybe I did <laughs> with a friend of mine. We did the. Uh, Colorado BDR in two nights and we 
but we ended at the KTM rally. I think this was in like 2012, the KTM rally in Steamboat. Um, but we actually started in Moab. We went because he wanted to go to a couple of places. We went to Dead Horse Point, And then from there, we drove all the way down to the Four Corners and then started the route. So a quick counterpoint, maybe devil's advocate. I don't know. Uh, and, you know, I got to do some BDR. I have yet to do them. Uh, that's the point this year for me. Without the BDR, so novice, novice, intermediate, would there be would people like me or be sort of intimidated to go out by that? In other words, does it provide the access? We realize this isn't hardcore. Maybe there are technical sections, but it sort of opens the door to get more people to experience that, and maybe that's what they're going for. Um, yeah, I think uh, it, prior to that, people were a little intimidated to do those because prior to the Colorado BDR. I had done 90% of it just on my own mm. with people. Right. All the pass, engineer, corkscrew, all those passes we had done, um, all the stuff through uh, uh, kind of central Colorado. I've done most of that. So um, it just kind of connected it all together and right. gave people, like I say, the breadcrumbs. And so um, I've even led. Uh, couple tours on bdrs um so it uh it's gotten people out for sure there's no question about it and what they do is a great job um and they definitely um uh they're definitely stewards of the environment because they talk about that and which is very important because um, a lot of organizations see motorcycling as a bad thing and we're not we're we're moving mm -hmm. and an economic study has been done so now we have economic proof that what we're doing as motorcyclists we are doing economic impact to some of these smaller areas where we're bringing tourist dollars into places that just don't get that and so i think that is huge um and you have to remember it's all on public access roads these are not um these are all public roads which is also huge um Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, uh, I think BDR honestly is a great idea. And, yeah. and like, unfortunately, like Texas, like, are you going to do one in Texas? Can't, there's too much private land, you know, it's like right. ranch, 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 ranch. And, you know, you've got a dirt road just going down. I don't know if they'd ever do one. Um, so, uh, you have to go to States that have good public access lands to, to ride in. Um, for sure. Now you can go from Mexican border all the way up to Canadian border off-road. Essentially, mm -hmm. I would say 98, 97% off-road. You're going to get on roads just because you have to do some connections, sure. But uh, that's huge. I mean, that's three, three and a half thousand miles of off-roading. And even though it's not in a straight line, because of course you can be going like this the whole way. Um, but I think it's, it's fabulous for the industry and for the group. And, you know, they're definitely under pressure because they have to deal with all the entities, BLM, Forest Service, blah, blah, blah. And if a fire is over here and you can't get there, well, we got to deal with what a go around. And so they're, they have a crew that just deals with it constantly, especially in the You know, summer. you mentioned, so. um, you, you mentioned something that I, I wanted to share, or I kind of wanted to share a personal story. I think you mentioned fire. So mm. I thought this was interesting because, uh, well, I'll just tell you the story. So two years ago, me and my other buddy, Eric, and Tom were riding 
up north and we we got into montana on some dirt roads and we just got into this section before the um i guess the fire service whatever closed the road Mm -hmm. but there were active fires all along both sides of the road and every mile or so you'd see a truck or whatever what got me was even though this stuff was probably 50 yards from me i could feel the heat in my suit while i'm riding like in you know to your point fires uh, especially out here in Colorado, this is like the number one thing I fear. But when I was riding through that stuff, I, was, I just couldn't believe how hot it was on the bike, riding it, you know, 30 miles an hour, but in the fires kind of over there. But man, it was, it was incredible. And it was a little scary. Like the power of that nature has was just incredible. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Don't, when, when mother nature wants to uh, do something and when she does is we have no, as humans, we have no control. I mean, just I'm in Palm Springs and just got 80 miles as the bird as the crow flies. The the whole west, southern west coast from L.A. all the way down to San Diego just been pounded with rain. I mean, mm. flooding like crazy. Um, we're actually sunny today, but we um, we've gotten a couple days of over half inch of rain each day, which is a lot for the desert. I'm in the Coachella Valley, mm. so a lot for the desert. Um, so it uh, and it's a good and a bad thing. It was funny. Our neighbor's like, well, this is kind of bad because, you know, what, what does rain bring? The seeds grow. So, boom, you get a lot of green. Well, you got a fire maybe in the summer. So there's this really mm-hmm. interesting dynamic that goes on. Um, we were living in Longmont uh, a couple of years ago with uh, the fires that were just I mean, at one point, my kids uh, they were living in North Boulder. They had, they were about literally 200 yards away from the border of an evacuation zone. They're like, um, if we wanted to come home, he said, you couldn't even see across the street. It was so smoky. And they're like, um, if you were going to bail, you know, bail out, what would you bring? I said, well, I'd bring, I put everything in a container, just grab a bunch of Rubbermaid containers. I'd bring my computer, my necessary paperwork, and get some clothes. The rest, you know, household items, sheets, beds, forget it. Buy all that. That's that's you know that that's yep. sacrificial. But you need just a few things. Five minutes later, can we come home? So um, we were living in Longmont. They were in North Boulder, and this is when the Boulder Fire came in. And uh, yeah, it was it was scary when we came past uh, some places where and fire's weird um, because there'll be a standing home, right? Like. 20 yards away, just charboiled. I mean, just charcoal mm-hmm. of a foundation. You're like, whoa. How it chooses, no idea. But uh, it's scary, and uh, it is what it is. Um, so just everybody be careful out there, and don't be lighting matches. Be smart about it. Uh, no, it's true. A lot of that was it's lit absolutely by true. people. So, you know, use your camp stove. Use smarts. Uh, I know a lot of people like for uh, campfires, but douse them and all that good stuff. Uh, because the the other thing is, if they find you and they they know you lit it, and somehow they figure this stuff out, you get fined, and it's not cheap. So, be responsible. Absolutely, and I, so I'm going to give a shout out to my buddy Kevin. Uh, so I've worked with Kevin uh, last couple of years on and off. Just he runs a fire mitigation company, and I was mm. I got so educated from him about how fires spread, obviously mitigating your property. But one thing that was interesting to me was like, he was like, you know, houses can catch on fire 
and this is a motorcycle podcast, by the way, but how's this going to catch on fire <laughs> from the in, <laughs> from the inside? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, they burn so hot and the embers yeah. are so hot. They'll go up in your vents. They'll go up in your soffits and all this stuff and will like catch your home on fire from the inside. And I was like, that's an absolutely incredible. Like just yeah. that level of knowledge. You think you're going to stand out there with some garden hose. Like, yeah, it's, it's time to evacuate. Yeah. The other thing I'll share is when I moved into the home, uh, well, almost 10 years ago, Charlie walks down the road. He's my neighbor. And he's first bit of advice he gave to me was kind of what you said, have a little plastic container. But he's like, go down to the bank, get yourself a safe deposit box, yeah. put all your essentials in there. Cause you know, what if you're not home and your place burns down? Yeah. I was like, man, that's a, that's a really good idea. So yeah, yeah fire is uh, fascinating to me. And, and then being a steward of the land and, you know, there's been countless videos where people put water on a fire and they're camping and it's still going. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's terrifying. Also yep. beautiful, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, necessary evil. I mean, for sure. But uh, anyway, so fire's crazy. So, and, uh, but yeah. We did talk about water. And um, as we transition back to your gear, before we get into Threadworks, you, all right, guys. So I hope you have enjoyed what you are seeing so far. What an incredible interview. What an incredible wealth of knowledge in Eric and Wolfman Luggage and now Threadworks. What we're about to dig into now is a serious education on waterproofing and gear, and also the catalyst for him moving from mass production Wolfman to Threadworks and sitting behind a sewing machine. Please make sure to visit wolfmanluggage.com where you can view all the products that Eric is discussing in this podcast. Lastly, if you like what you see, if you love the podcast, please hit that like subscribe button. It really helps the channel. So I thank you in advance for your support. Let's get back to the interview. You know, we had a little bit of this discussion on the phone and you're talking about how much it's raining, which thought about waterproofing. I want you to educate me and everybody listening, watching on the, because I thought it was fascinating, the history of waterproofing. Because you were like, yeah, you can't waterproof this stuff up until recently, or, you know, because of whatever technology, racking, wrapping in trash bags. So the history of waterproofing in general with respect to gear or bags, I think that's a, a really good topic. History. This is yes. the history. Um, a lot of Let's the waterproofing it. was done. Um, you didn't want to use, uh, from my understanding, didn't want to use a lot of animal fats because uh, that would attract animals and chew a hole okay. through your, uh, through, let's say, if you had a poncho, chew a hole through your poncho. So I think they found seeds and oils, um, linseed oil, uh, that kind of thing, where they called uh, things oil skin. So they would weave um, like a, uh, a canvas and then just immerse it in linseed oil and so on. And that would be as waterproof as you could get, like in the 1800s and stuff like that. And then fast forward now, um, we use urethane, urethane coatings. Um, and that's what most of all our fabrics are coated with urethane. You can tell you have a, a right side and a wrong side. So, the, and it's, uh, it's, um, it's put on with rollers and pressure and a little heat as, a, as the fabric is once woven. Uh, most fabric comes out as what's called gray goods. So it's actually kind of a, a uh, off-white color and then gets dyed. And then after the dyeing process, then it gets coated. And then on the top of it, so on the right side that we see, because you have right and wrong side of fabric, you uh, 
they put what's called a DWR, a durable water repellent. So this is more like a Scotch guard on the outside. Okay. 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 That so I that's just kind of Scotch kind guard. of the just the generalization. This is very general, but this is kind of a yes, concept. Yes. So a company called Challenge Sailcloth uh, a couple of years ago, they also sprung up. I knew some of the. I know one of the people. Um, I know some of the people there, and uh, they came out with all kinds of really cool fabric. But what they did is, first of all, the base fabric is made out of plastic bottles. So it's polyester-based. So they're okay. recycling plastic bottles. Unfortunately, um, I try to source as much fabric as made in the USA. All our thousand-denier cordura is domestic. So that's all made in the USA. And one reason I chose it, it's kind of a standby in the outdoor industry, easy to work with, light, but you get a billion colors. So we get a lot of okay. colors. So that's one of the things I really liked. Um, with uh, Challenge Sailcloth, you can get some colors. Um, the Ultra 800, which is their most durable fabric and one of the most durable fabrics on the market, it's kind of a dark blackish gray or white. That's it. That's the only colors. But what they've done is they created a laminate. So this is not coated. This is our the material that we actually use in all our liners. So this is what a finished liner would look like. Just a simple bag. Okay. But what I do with it you know, is so this I chose so, because so it, for somebody that that can't see that and is listening to this, what would that? Uh, how do you explain what you're holding in your hand? Okay, this is just a little piece of scrap fabric. I just cut out a liner. Okay. It's part of the liner. Okay. Um, but okay. it's the same fabric. It's just a little scrap. I pulled it out of my scrap box. Um, okay. I keep certain sizes just in case. So yeah. this is the right side, you know, kind of okay. darkish. That's the actually uh, outside fabric. And then on the inside, these are some um, polyester stringers as well. So it gives it strength and stability. But there's the shiny stuff that you can see is a laminate. So instead okay. of being dipped in a solution, they're actually – Two uh, fabrics coming, two materials coming together under a roller that's getting pressed. Mm. And the laminate okay. is that. So what Challenge Sailcloth did is then created a tape. And this is the tape. Looks kind of like strapping tape is the best way I can explain it. Yep. But the adhesive on here is designed to react with this laminate. So okay. per their specific, per their um, use, is when I put this on, it has to sit for about 24 hours to let it react with it. And I've had situations where I was, when I was playing with it, after it sat for a while, and I don't want to mess anything up. So I let it sit so um, everything can get good adhesion. Because And I let it sit wrong side out so you see all the tape, and I'm going to turn it right side out when I send it to you. Um, so I did a test, and I... When I peeled some tape off, actually the laminate came with it. So this thing bonds oh. really well. And so that has now created, so I sew the seams. So these bags, get a, the, the handwork in making a set of bags is intense because you do one seam and then you tape it. You can see the tape right, where is it? right here. So you do the seam, tape it. Then you sew the next seam, go back, tape it. And so it's a heck of a process, and it takes quite a bit of time 
to finish off a bag. But then ultimately, all the seams are waterproof, are taped. Bottom, the corner, where the bottom side seams, and then the main seam. So, and then you have to let it sit to uh, adhere and do its thing. Um, and that technology didn't really exist three years ago. So it really a game changer oh. in, in our world. So, but that you would just you would join them another way before that. Yes, yes, we used a um, which is very common in, for all kinds of stuff. Um, they would use hot tape. Gore-Tex uses it, um, and it's basically a clear tape that almost looks like just scotch tape in various widths and various thicknesses. It, okay. uh, we had this machine, and it uses hot air to activate the glue and activate um, the coating on the fabric so that they will join. It goes under rollers and so on. We, uh, the machine's huge, weighed 400 pounds, and you need a big compressor to run it. And it's louder than hell because it's blowing hot air. And the hot, when I say hot air, when we did hot taping, that air temperature is about 800 degrees to activate so, it. And you could do corners and so on. And it was a, it's an all or nothing process because you can't stop. It's really funky, but you get used to it. But it was loud and big. Uh, this technology allows pretty much anybody to make a waterproof bag, but you have to work within its ability. So you have to change the way you think to use this tape. Hot tape, because it's, um, uh, how would I put it, um, heating up, becoming very uh, flexible. You can go around corners, all kinds of neat shapes. This tape, if you can't go around a circle because when you fold it over trying to cover that seam, it's going to gather, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fold over, it's not going to work well. So you have to kind of almost change the entire way you think to work with the fabric rather than the fabric working to you. Uh, it's, it has limitations, but you have to really look at those limitations and then exploit them for to get the best use of them if i can explain that um so you just have to change the way you think to make it you make it to your advantage so work with the fabric so, and so on and new technology on. three years old how does this change what you are able to provide um your customers because i know you like well, to do custom work we do a uh, we are now able to offer a waterproof option that five years ago we couldn't. You know, a mm. trash bag would have been your waterproof option, or we would use the hot tape machine, which is like I said, four hundred four hundred pound behemoth. Um, and I don't need that anymore. I just buy the tape. You can peel it off. It's peel and stick. Um, but it gives our uh, user a waterproof option that. Uh, I think is just fabulous. And what's really cool on some of their fabrics, I can actually make the outside back waterproof as well because I can use that as a laminate and that's on the Ultra 800. We do an Ultra 800 uh, bag, um, which is the premium, super premium. And then they're, they're expensive because the fabric's expensive. I mean, it retails for mm -hmm. 75 bucks a yard. So this is not cheap. It's 
kind of cool to work with. Can't, I don't cut it with scissors. I use a razor knife. I'm used to, to it. Uh, that seems to cut it better. Scissors, just it, it's durable, blah, 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 but expensive. But I can make it waterproof. And I made some, since my bike is white, I had to kind of ah. color coordinate. But this one actually, all the... So all the stitching you see on the outside is all covered with tape on the inside of the bag. So I can make this bag waterproof from the outside and you have a liner. So one thing that's cool about that, so now you have double layer protection, but what's nice with a liner is you can leave the bags on, pull the liner out and then take that into the tent or your camp or so on. So it makes it a lot more. I like uh, what I found out um, building stuff when we went to China and we had waterproof stuff made here in the U.S. as well. When you're dealing with a, a single layer of fabric like vinyl or TPU, which is thermoplastic urethane, um, it, you're dealing with a single layer. And what I found that I didn't like about it is, let's say you have a wet tent or something wet. Well, you're, you're kind of like stuck because you're going to stick your wet tent in a duffel bag and it might have dry stuff in there, like your sleeping bag and stuff like that. How do you separate that out? Well, I find with a liner, you can fold over that liner, knowing that whatever's in the bottom is going to be encased in something waterproof and then put that tent, wet tent on top. So you kind of have this uh, wet dry option now that is, I think, a lot more versatile than just an all or nothing bag, or you're going to put something in a garbage bag and so on. So um, I like having that versatility. If you had wet gloves, you can just fold over the liner and put these gloves on top. So you have a nice barrier between wet and dry. Um, Cause that's always a concern in moto world, you know, wet and dry is always a concern. Um, so I like that. I watched uh, on uh, one of your videos, you, you, you actually outline that and you, because I do have a traditional roll bag or roll top bag, right? Mm -hmm. And you were like, yeah, I, really, I don't really like those. And when I think about my bag that I put on the back, I'm like, there is no separation unless I put something in a trash bag mm -hmm. to keep it, you know, so now you have that technology to be able to do that, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I, I kind of looked at that and I'm like, I like that, um, that versatility of that. Um, and it also makes it where, on some of the products, like a, a vinyl bag, if you got a hole in it, you got to find a vinyl patch. TPU is hard to patch because TPU is so thick, um, or not thick, uh, slick. It's hard to find stuff that will adhere to it. Whereas if you do a fabric, then you get a hole in it. Might happen. Rock out in between, something like that. We can patch that. That's easy. And if your mm -hmm. liner gets a hole in it, we can fix that too. So it 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 creates a lot of longevity too. You know, if we had to patch a liner, I'd just sew a patch on it and then retape over it. And it comes back to waterproof. So it makes it really uh, the longevity, the simplicity. I think it's really kind of cool. That's my opinion. I wanted to make sure to touch on as we uh, kind of wrap it up here, but you've moved from obviously you're still on Wolfman, but mm -hmm. in our conversations, you've moved from mass production and all the things, you know, having 20, 30 employees, and you're the man behind the sewing machine. You're doing what you love. You're creating yeah. what you love and you're doing custom work for folks. And by custom, you know what I mean? Not like one-offs, but you know what I mean? And yeah. Yeah. After I all do, these years, uh, after all these decades, what, um, what was the catalyst for that? Why, why move from, you know, seemingly I've got this great place in Longmont just pumping out gear to, I just want to be behind a sewing machine. Um, 
That one was interesting. Okay, so uh, it became very personal. When mm. I went to China, um, because everybody at the time, one of the, uh, the, the ideas behind China was uh, um, people wanted all the time, why isn't this waterproof? Why isn't this waterproof? You need to make waterproof. So I was like, all right, let's, let's take that nut. Let's make that jump. And we don't really have the technology um, in the U.S., to uh, really build RF welded product. And RF welded is radio frequency welded. It's, uh, it's a process of inter, uh, injecting, if you will, uh, radio frequency waves through the fabric where it actually, the two layers of fabric will actually bond and commingle at an atomic level. And they actually oh, wow. go in, yeah, I need it, blah, blah, blah. But we don't have a lot of the infrastructure for it. Like, tools the the dyes and the tooling for it uh they do uh, i mean it's amazing how fast they do tooling and stuff like that um so i went there to build this product because we wanted to do i had to go to the country of manufacture since we don't do it much here there's a handful of companies that do there's one that i know of that does uh, that we use and they couldn't keep up so anyway Went to China and did it. Um, but your minimum order quantity on average is 500 pieces. Okay. Um, when, when we started uh, in 19, uh, we got our first shipment in 20. Yeah. Um, a container, 1200 bucks, 40 foot container, 1200 bucks. Two weeks on the water, you get it a week later. Very simple, it's very seamless. COVID hits, world gets shut down. We essentially start a brand new business, COVID, um, and uh, container prices. I paid twenty four thousand to get a container in. We were low on product, and we had to do it. I mean, it just it sucked. And I know people who spent umpteen thousands more than I did, and I'm talking hundreds of thousands more. Um, so you you got to have a lot of capital. It's very difficult to make changes because you're on such a large volume quantity. So to make a change, you have to sell out of one thing to introduce the new change. And then you've got to sell mm -hmm. through that. And I found out um, I'm not – you become – you do some R&D back and forth with the, fa the factory – um, I lived there, so we got all the tooling done. We went back to make sure everything was, uh, we got all the samples done, got all the kits set up. Um, but what I found ultimately is you become a sales force. You get a container of stuff and you got to sell this stuff. So you got to sell like hell. Mm -hmm. I'm not a salesperson. I don't enjoy, when I go to rallies, I never sit in a booth. I don't enjoy that really. Um, it, uh, so getting back to when we made in the U S when we had 20, we had in-house sewing, we had eight seamstresses, uh, we had people do assembly, we had sales, marketing, and all this stuff. The other reason is, <laughs> so all, so having these things I just talked about being overseas with China, having lots of, lots of people. I found two things. I don't like managing people. I'm not good at it. I don't enjoy it. Um, and I don't like waiting. 
so, and what I mean by that is, I don't like where you have to sell through 10,000 bags to get to the next iteration. It's too long. Um, and we right. had some problems in China. They messed up in manufacturing and you just have no control over that anymore. You got it here. You're not going to send it back to have them fix it. You paid for it. You're kind of SOL. And so all that kind of led me to do a deep dive and just say, what do I like? One, I know how to make bags because I, we did it. I, I trained all our seamstresses. They knew everything I they built. I told I showed them how to build it. I showed them where to put reinforcing stitching. And I kind of said, this is a given. This is how this bag is made. Um, and that's the way I trained everybody that that is a quality product. Um, and I didn't enjoy managing people. And so mm -hmm. I like, I ride alone mo mostly. I like to work alone um, because I would rather build the bag. Um, I, I just always kind of felt like, eh, I, I just, I'll do it. Just leave me alone and I'll do it um, rather than trying to have people right. help me. And so that's kind of where it all came from. And I'm very honest about it. I did not enjoy managing people. Um, there are people that are way better at that than I am. My strengths are production. I am a production person. I actually have my my bachelor's of science is in apparel production. And I didn't like making clothing, though I did. Um, I made backpacks. Back then I was in the back. I was uh, uh, making backpacks. and I made a snowboard, a fanny pack to carry a snowboard. I mean, all kinds of wild stuff in my uh, project classes and whatnot. And one of the fanny packs called the Greg Bag that is in Threadworks, uh, but it's under the Wolfman logo. Well, it's under the Wolfman logo, and we do a bicycle line called PAC, P-A-C-K. Couldn't do it with that because we have a trademark. I don't want to say legality. Legality, where somebody said, well, yeah. we let you use it if you put things on bike, but if it goes on the person, no. So we had to kind of separate the two. But that Greg bag, uh, waste pack, I designed that in college to carry books because I hated backpacks, but I was in the backpack industry. Anyway, um, I worked at <laughs> Madden Mountaineering. I did my internship at Madden. I worked at Mountain Smith, and then I started Wolfman. I was in the outdoor industry, but then I did. I went to a trade show, didn't sell anything, and I'm like, I don't really know anything about packs. I'm motorcycling, so I transitioned into motorcycles. But uh, um the main inspiration was just one, I'm not ready to retire. And two, because mm -hmm. I like to be, keep busy. And two, I have a good skill set. I know how to choose fabrics. I know pattern work. I was trained by a class. I was trained in pattern making from a pattern maker. She and I, and, and school and so on. So I do all my own hand patterns. Um, I uh, know how to choose fabric. I've used vertical blade knives, I've done it all. And now it it just was kind of like I saw it in the outdoor industry, in the backpack world, and some of the bicycle world. I'm like, I wonder if we can do this in the motorcycle industry. And that's where it all came into. And I feel it took me 30 some years to say, yeah, this is where I really need to be because I have a skill set that is really good, solid. Um, and what I really like, and this is more for me, is that. I know all the stitching in a bag. 
I know what I'm putting mm-hmm. into it. I know that the bag I build, you may not like what I do because it may not fit your needs. Fine. No problem. I am not offended. But you can't tell me I don't make a quality product. That's the bottom line. So I know how to put bags together. And so I wanted to use my skill set in that realm and just take it different, kind of literally get out of this cram volume down your throat uh, that all these manufacturers are doing. I mean, they have container loads of this stuff come in. They got to get rid of it. And I Mm -hmm. just kind of got off the highway and stood on the sidewalk and said, well, you can have that. Yeah. Um, I'm not interested in that anymore. I'm interested in working with the individual customers because this is made to order. I don't keep inventory. What I have inventory of is all the raw materials, fabric, buckles, foam, webbing. I have that readily available, but I don't have finished product because I don't know what I'm going to make from one day to the next. Um, Mm -hmm. So my goal was to work more with the customer and say, I want to build this. Um, but I don't do a hundred percent what we call blank, sh- blank, uh, like, uh, blank slate work. And the reason is I get asked for it all the time. Will you build this like this guy does? And I, first of all, I don't like to copy anything. I feel right. innovation has to come, uh, from within. And I've definitely been innovative, uh, throughout motorcycle world. Uh, and I can, sh- I'm not going to get into all of it, but. I've definitely innovated a lot of adventure riding and stuff like that um, and been innovating as I go. Um, and um, so one of the reasons is most people don't know what they really want. So I've done it before where a guy gave me all the dimensions. I want you to make this bag. And I made, I showed him the pattern work. Okay, you're ready. But and I built the product and he's like, well, that's not what I was thinking and i'm like i made this verbatim to your dimensions and your specifications and it was a lose-lose for both of us he was pissed Mm. i wanted to get paid um nobody is really going to pay me to do their pattern work because it's expensive for me to put paper on a pencil on paper that's when the money starts and i just said you know i'm not interested in that and the other thing is for a confidence level, I want to know what I give the customer works. So yep. everything that I have has been thoroughly tested by me. Um, so I know it works instead of just like, well, I, you know, good luck. Um, that doesn't work <laughs> with me. So right. um, that that's, uh, I, I want to make sure that what I put out is what I say it is. And so I've done the R and at one point I'm into the bases right now because they're really cool. I mean, I had a stack of R and D bases, which like a foot or 18 inches tall of just the iterations and mm. so on. And, uh, it takes a while and different bags. And then I'm in a, I just found out the real term is called continuous improvement. So I'm always looking at how do I improve the product from, and it could happen from one bag to the next. I have found new ways to, to put uh, 
the waterproof tape on it. And that actually is uh, stronger. Um, I am incorporating what I call the CMB bottom into the uh, rolly bags. I call it the crash and burn bottom. Now it's a, it, the leading edge. It's not the bottom, but it's the leading edge of the bag is doubled. It will, I'm thinking and offer it or just uh, raise the price a little bit to inc uh, include the labor and the fabric and so on. But it's a double bottom in that leading mm -hmm. edge on the bag so that if you do go down, you have double protection rather than just single layer. Um, oh, that's that nice. type of thing. So I'm constantly looking how to improve, how to be efficient, um, because efficiency makes uh, more, puts more money in my pocket um, because I'm not behind a um, sewing machine all the time. And uh, those are my goals. Um, always trying to look at how can I improve something. Um, so that's just that's just inherent in me. Um, and, uh, that's just kind of how I operate. Um, but so it's not 100% custom meaning from a blank sheet, but it's a hundred percent personalized. I love that. I, I think in the, uh, you know, like you said, in the world of mass production in the world of, I can go to any store and there's all these brands. Yes, you have the history in that, but you also now produce something very personal, very high quality. You have a vested interest in every piece that goes out. You put your mm -hmm. hands on it. I think there's something super special about that. And something, in terms of, you know, it's just, just different. You know, it's different than what a lot of people are doing. Yeah. And it's, uh, thank you. And I think it's also, this is legacy product. If you take care of it, this is going to last you a very long time. And, and yes. granted, if you go down on, you know, on certain roads, Anything is going to explode and grind to zero. That is a given. We can't, you know, even an aluminum bag, if you're going 100 miles an hour and you go down, you're going to grind a hole in that thing. There mm. is, you know, we can't foresee all of it. Will we fix it? Of course we will. Can we, uh, you know, let's, let's be civil about it. First of all, you know, I, I have this thing and I'm going to be honest about it. The thing that pisses me off more than anything. I went on a trip and I fell over and your bags failed. Your, your product failed. I'm like, okay. Well, let, let's get back to brass tacks. You failed as a, my, my always comeback now is you failed as a rider. You fell over. Right. <laughs> Which I have. You're done. supposed to, you're supposed to keep the damn thing up, you know? <laughs> so let, let's stop with that BS and just say, look, I went down and your bag, uh, you know, bag fell apart. Okay, cool. Let's be civil about this. Let's be honest. Don't blame it on me. You went down. Mm -hmm. yep. Flat out, that's fact. We can't foresee everything. So let's be civil about it. Of course we're gonna fix it. Let's, you know, first I always ask, first thing I ask is you okay? And they always kind of take a step back, like, oh yeah, I'm fine. Well, cool, good. Now let's let's talk about what we gotta do. Um, that kind of thing. So I, I don't yep. I don't deal with bullying anymore. You wanna bully me? I'll, I'll just hang up. I'm not going to put up with that ever again. I had, I've lost my patience with that kind of thing. Um, this is not, mm. I mean, I, I had a guy freaking out on me. I said, sir. Um, and this was the gist of it. I said, if this is a true emergency, please hang up and dial 911. But if this is motorcycle, take a deep breath. This is something we're passionate about. So let's, let's get back to just, Let's discuss the issue. 
I kind yeah. of slapped him in a sense of reality and he had a little Southern drawl. He's like, I'm so sorry. You are absolutely mm. correct. I'm like, okay. And we got along great. And we did everything we wanted to. And we, we, we parted as good customer friends. And so let's, let's be civil. Technique. Yes. Let's, let's get, you know, yeah. this is motorcycling. I guess it's a great way to deescalate sort of a pissed off customer. I don't, I can't imagine how many of those you've had to deal with. I think even when you do, you know, I was in customer service before service industry and man, you could just do the most amazing job and people are going to complain about it. So oh, yeah. the old saying goes, you could get everybody a company car. Somebody's going to complain about the color. So I can only imagine <laughs> some of the, uh, well, you got people some of the who things complain that you've about a nice, with. you know, a beautiful sunny day. Wow. Too much. Yeah. So, okay. so when you, when you, yeah, so. <laughs> when you, uh, when somebody wants to, and I guess we'll wrap it up with this. If, you know, we've talked about your gear. If somebody is interested in, you know, you, what you make in that shop right there, how do they go about finding out about it? How do they contact you? How do they figure out, hey, I want some saddlebags, a tank bag, whatever. What's the process for that? Uh, it's real simple. Uh, Wolfmanluggage.com uh, forward slash mm-hmm. pages forward slash threadworks or just Wolfmanluggage.com. Right on the homepage, they'll see a, a tag that says uh, Threadworks. Um, that's the easiest way. Or sales at wolfmanluggage.com is a real easy way to get in touch with me. Well, look, man, I think uh, we're pushing up on time, and I, I really appreciate talking to you. Uh, the funny thing is I have a, a page of notes here, and, and this is what's always great is you know we have a plan, or I have sort of a plan, and sure. we talked about – 10% of it. And the rest has just been fantastic conversation. And <laughs> I really enjoyed the insight. And, you yeah. know, I think it just, you know, we talked about forest fires and we talked about just things that I didn't, you know, ride into Alaska, you know, like whatever. So I'll let you have the last word if you want to wrap it up. Yeah. It's a, uh, sewing is not a, uh, a, a, it's a very, I want to say almost Zen op- uh, occupation because you can't do it you have to be relaxed. You can't do it under duress because you make mistakes. You got to just kind of take a deep breath and just really get into the moment um, and focus on your craft and just let it happen. Um, and I've done it where I'm like, I'm pushing. I just had to get up and walk away, start the bag over because I'm making mistakes. And I'm like, I am not in the right frame of mind. So you get in a good frame of mind uh, to really really embrace the product. Um, and that's what, to me, um, a lot of it is all about is, um, for me, it's using a skill set. Threadworks, how would I put it? If I had to make a commercial of Threadworks, Threadworks is about working with the customer and seeing some of their vision come through with kind of the box that I've created. And when I say the box, like the bags and so on, but, you know, you can put your own spin on that, i.e. color, different fabrics, and make let me make something very personal t- for you that you will embrace and cherish for years. And if well taken care of, this is legacy product that you may hand down um, to the next generation. Um, I've cr- I've been able to help people travel. So this will enhance your, your experience, motorcycle experience, because it'll allow you to take what I always say, take your life or your world with you, meaning all your camping gear or your clothes or so on to somewhere you've never been before. 
it is so evident to me that you absolutely love what you're doing. And I hope, and I know that that will resonate with the people that are watching us and the people that want to buy your products. Hell, I need a tank bag. We should talk after, but I yeah. think, uh, you're a great dude. You make good products. Um, you have a, a fantastic story and, um, I'm excited to get this published so that people can, can hear all of your musings and talking about Zen and writing and all the good things. So Eric from Wolfman Threadworks, thanks for being on the show today, man. We're going to have to do it again soon. This time or next time when we got maybe two or three hours. All right, guys. So there you have it. That was Eric Haugen, owner of Wolfman Luggage and now Threadworks. What an incredible interview. Thanks for watching in, tuning in to the Moto Beamer show. I've got more incredible guests lined up here in the very near future. Can't wait to have those conversations. From me to you, thanks for all your support, and we'll see you on the next one.